The media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. We have often heard about the dangers of so-called renewable energy technologies on our show. Many in our listening audience would have seen firsthand the failures of electric grids causing widespread disasters in the U.S. and around the world. Yes, even with these failures, though, many people continue to cling to the idea that these energy sources can power our society. And that's not to mention electric cars, which have been shown to be insufficient compared to fossil fuel-powered engines. (laughs) Yeah, wind and solar power are also given subsidies from the government. Imagine the lunacy of putting our taxpayers' dollars towards insufficient energy sources. Yet that's exactly what's been happening in our pretty backwards society. Yes, there are so many better causes that we should be funding instead. But even without full dependence on wind and solar, we are still experiencing electric grid failures. How resilient is our electric grid anyway? Yeah, good question. My co-host Mary Jean and I will be speaking with our guest today, Robert Bryce, who will be discussing these important questions with us. Robert has been writing about energy and power for more than 30 years. During that time, he has published over a thousand articles in numerous publications, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. He now writes exclusively on Substack, and you can follow him there. His username is robertbrace.substack.com. Yay, great. Well, welcome to the show, Robert. Happy to be with you all. Yeah, good. So could you tell us, Robert, what are the consequences of expanding the electric grid in supplying our nation's power? Well, okay, so we have an hour. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, really, it's a big, it's a, big a big, a big question. Um, but let me let me speak just more generally, if I could, to start, Tom, about where we are in the U.S. versus the rest of the world. So, what I find quaint, and and I I put something on this on on Twitter uh, just this morning was. We're obsessed with these ideas around alternative energy. I don't call them green. I don't call them clean. They're alternative forms of energy production. Uh, wind and solar, in particular, are the ones that are the, the the ones that are getting the big subsidies and and the ones that are getting all the attention. We're focused on these in in, in the U.S. and Canada, but let's look at what is happening happening in Bangladesh. Huge power shortages. They're looking at power cuts all summer long. Same in Pakistan. Same in India. Uh, all, all throughout the developing world, there just isn't enough electricity in general. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, in, we in the United States, we use about 12,000 kilowatt hours per capita per year. Uh, in, in the w- global average is about 3,500. In India, it's about 1,200 kilowatt hours per capita per year. So put another way, there are <clears throat> over 3.5 billion people. I've just been running these numbers. 3.5 billion people in the world today. Actually, the latest number is about 3.9. 3.9 billion people in the world today who consume less than or about 1,000 kilowatt hours per capita per year. You're talking about 47% of the world's population is living in countries where per capita consumption is a fraction, not just of the U.S. average, but a fraction of the global average. And so I just find this, you know, I'm increasingly uh, am in watching what is happening with the energy politics, particularly in the United States and to some degree in Canada. This idea, this romanticism of renewables, this fetishism, I think is the right word for renewable energy at a time when we are living in incredible electricity and energy abundance. And it's because there's some kind of sanctified idea around the idea of renewables that is attracting this, not just 
high polling numbers, but just staggering amounts of money. The Inflation Reduction Act alone in the United States, something on the order of $300 billion in subsidies for wind and solar. I mean, these wow. are just outrageous sums. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's important to just set the table and say, what does this mean in terms of the entire world? Because we're getting so focused on, well, what's happening here? You know, and what did Congress do? Well, that matters, but we have to think about if, there, if we're going to address the issue of climate change, CO2 emissions, the rest of it, we have to think about this globally and, and where are we vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. So I just wanted to get that kind of out of, uh, off my chest at the beginning because it's some of the research that I've been doing lately for this project I'm, or presentation I'm giving in London in October. Oh, in London, England? Yes. Oh, great. Yeah, and of course, they've had huge troubles. I hear they have something they call heat for their seniors. I mean, it's supposed to be a developed country. <laughs> Well, and let's look at Germany, which uh, more than any other country in Germany, ha in Europe rather, has gone all in for renewables and through this energy venda, their so-called energy transition or, or uh, you know, energy process. I forgot the exact uh, def uh, translation of energy venda. But Germany is now in recession. And just in the last day or two in the Daily Mail, there was an article quoting both the heads of, of uh RWE, the big utility, and the head of Evonik Industries, which is a huge chemical maker, 34,000 employees, both of them saying that Germany is facing deindustrialization because of what the head of Evonik called an energy policy disaster. So yeah. when we look again around the world, let's move beyond what we see here just in front of us in our neighborhoods, in our towns, our, our, our countries. Look around the world at what is happening. Germany drove itself into the ditch. They shut off their nuclear plants in April, and now their 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 own uh, uh, highest ranking executives in their in in their business in their uh, business sector are saying this is an energy policy disaster, and we're facing their words deindustrialization. Wow, wow, and and I guess the bottom line also is that when it gets cold in Europe, they're going to see a lot of people die. I mean, uh, I heard twenty times more people die from the cold than the heat, and so Robert, I mean, is this likely going to kill people in Europe? Well, it, 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 that is certainly possible, Tom. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not good at predicting the future. Europe escaped this past winter with because the temperatures were very mild. We didn't have a very cold winter at all. Um, so going into this winter, Europe is well, relatively well prepared for the winter of 23-24 because they've been able to restock their gas supplies, etc. But what if we have an extended cold snap? What happens? Uh, in, and, and we also see already a political reaction in Germany with uh, a, a backlash against the enforced uh, imposition of heat pumps instead of gas-fired furnaces. So there, there are a lot of issues that are coming to a head, I think, when it comes to uh, issues around the, these impositions of renewables. Uh, we see it here in the U.S. with the, the backlash against uh, land use conflicts over, over uh, wind and solar projects. Uh, resistance to high voltage transmission. You know, I, I think it's important. I've, I've talked about the issues of looking at this as a global issue, but I think it's also important that we zoom out and think about these networks, our electricity and, and, and energy networks as networks. And that's one of the key things we need to be thinking about is how does this system work? And I see very mm -hmm. little of focus on that, the, that our network is a network of networks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if we look at electric cars, what are the problems with electric cars and uh, how do they increase our dependence on China in particular? Mm, well, yeah. Thanks. I mean, this is an issue that I've, uh, you know, I've been a long time critic of electric vehicles. Um, uh, you know, I've looked at the history of this. I've written about it now for more than a dozen years. And when you look at the history of electric cars, again, think about, you know, we're, we, we have this idea of presentism. There's no history. There's no, you know, nothing happened yesterday. 
Electric cars are not a new technology. They've been around for more than a century. I can point you to uh, 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 quotes from the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, the New York Times from 100 years ago talking about the potential for the electric vehicle. Um, I think the LA Times article was 1915 that said something like, oh, electric cars are going to take over when, when as soon as we find a, a, an efficient, lightweight battery. That's 100 years ago. So do we have better batteries? Sure we do. Do they, are they, you know, lithium ion, their energy density is better. Their power output is better. There's no doubt. I've driven Teslas. I mean, they're, they're impressive automobiles. But keep in mind, these are luxury automobiles. The average price of an EV in the United States last year was $66,000. This is Benz and Beamer territory. So mm. we're not, it's not the working class that are buying these vehicles. It's the rich. And then, but to your direct question, Mary Jean, on China. This is an article I wrote on my Substack, robertbryce.substack.com, um, yeah. talking about China's dominance of the electric vehicle supply chain, and more particularly, neodymium iron boron magnets. And these are the high-strength permanent magnets that are used in most electric vehicles in the motors. And who controls the market for neodymium iron boron magnets? It's China. 75%, this is a Department of Commerce number, 75% of the neodymium iron boron magnets imported into the United States come from China. Globally, China has a 90% share of this market. So why in the name of Peter, Paul and Mary would we make our auto industry dependent on Chinese supply chains? It makes no sense whatsoever. And yet this is the stated policy of the Biden administration to not just um, uh, encourage, but to require, to mandate automakers build as much as much as two thirds of the vehicles they sell by 2032 would have to be electric, all electric. This plays right into the hands of China. And I'm not a China basher. China's going to take care of China. But why, again, from a strategic standpoint, would the U.S. ever do this? It makes no sense whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that they really don't want us to drive our cars. They really don't want us to have electricity. And as a consequence, they set up circumstances that are almost impossible. So, I mean, people say, oh, we can't meet net zero. Well, yeah, we can if we deindustrialize and people don't have <laughs> the amenities that they're used to. I mean, are they oh, thinking I, that? I don't, know. I, don't, I don't know, Tom. I mean, it's hard for me to just kind of figure out what is actually happening. And, you know, I, I hate to speculate about why this, you know, what are the motives? I, you know, I can speak could speculate, but I, I, I try not to because I think let, let's just look at the policies the way they are and what are the implications of the policies they're talking about. And yeah. um, and the other thing I think is key to remember here in Mary Jean, you posed the question about China. Um, the latest numbers show that Americans are keeping their automobiles longer. And why are they doing that? Because new cars are so expensive. Look, I'm a prime example of this. Uh, I work at home, so I don't drive a lot, but we are, we have a 2005 Toyota 4Runner and the engine went bad. Well, we could have bought, I probably could have afforded a new car, right? Or, or a new-ish car. But I went out and looked at new-ish, three, four, five years old. They're still forty dollars or $50,000. So what did I do? I put a crate engine. I put a new engine in my old car. And what is happening? All across the U.S., people are keeping their cars longer. So this idea that suddenly electric vehicles, even if they were going to provide you know, a big percentage of the new car sales. The fact is, as, as uh, uh, one of my guests on my podcast that uh, just a few weeks ago came on, uh, talked about that just because EVs can reduce emissions doesn't mean they will. And that's the other important thing to keep in mind here. Yeah, are they interesting? Could they reduce emissions? Yes, they could. If they were to replace all of the existing automobiles, they won't do that. And why is that? Because 
They can't. We have 280 million automobiles on the road in the United States alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is the electric grid even capable of providing the electricity for all those cars if they became electric? Well, and there, and again, is a key other key part of this whole construct. I, I hate to think of it as a plan because it's not really a plan. It's more of a, a scheme, right? A, a construct that hasn't been very well thought out. And my guest was Ashley Nunez, by the way. Uh, he was on the Power Hungry podcast just a couple of weeks ago and talking about in a very, I think, a very dispassionate way, um, a very learned way around EVs. And he's written some very he testified before Congress, I think, in April um, on the issue of electric vehicles, making this very point. Just because they can reduce emissions, that doesn't mean that they will. OK, mm. so you have the, the vulnerability with the supply chains from China regarding the magnets and not to mention the issue of cobalt and the, the provision of cobalt for the batteries that are used. And where's cobalt coming from? Largely from the Democratic Republic of Congo in artisanal mines, which is a, uh, a kind of a quaint term for what in many cases are child labor law, child labor mines, uh, child, you know, slave, bordering on slave labor in some of these mines to, to produce the cobalt needed. Mm -hmm. To your point uh, or your question, Tom, about the grid, yeah, I mean, the, the, what is overlooked in, in, in a lot of this is, well, from where will we get the power? How are we going to produce the juice to put into the, into the electric vehicles? And that part has just largely been overlooked. Oh, well, we'll, we'll generate it with renewables. Well, really, will you? How do you, <laughs> yeah. you know, explain that to me and go slowly because you can't build wind turbines in California today. And there's a lot of resistance to solar. So how, you know, and this is one on the vanguard of the push for EVs. I have some numbers. I'm going to publish them here on my Substack sometime soon. But San Diego Gas and Electric estimated that if, to electrify everything in California by 2045, I think you'd have to double electricity production in the state. Well, how would you get there? I mean, I, there is no credible scenario for anything like approaching anything like a doubling in that short of a time frame. Mm -hmm. So you were saying that they're not allowing wind turbines to be built in California. Why is that? Well, it's the same reason as everywhere else. People don't want to have 600 foot high wind turbines in their backyards, and I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. And I've documented this, and I've spent years, in fact, documenting it because I'm just kind of a hard head. Uh, <laughs> but I've created the Renewable Rejection Database, which is available on my website, robertbryce.com, oh. oh, okay. in which I've documented over 590 rejections of wind and solar over the last, uh, well, since 2015. So uh -huh. 390 some odd rejections of wind, rejections or restrictions of wind, over 130 rejections of solar all across rural America, all, from Maine to Hawaii. Local communities are saying, we don't want these massive projects in our neighborhoods. Go take them and put them somewhere where the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. We don't want them here. <laughs> so that's actually a good development that, that people are standing up against it. Well, it's not I mean, a new they're, development, they're... though, Tom. I mean, this has been ongoing for years. And, okay, but but yet the you know it's largely unreported by big media outlets. Now I will say there has been some change. In fact, I was cited in the Washington. My work was cited in the Washington Post twice in the last uh, last month or so. Oh and wow! The renewable rejection database. And but why are people re rejecting this? Well, it's obvious they don't want <laughs> six hundred foot high wind turbines. You know, on their in their view shed, they don't want to look at red blinking lights all night every night for the rest of their lives. Nor do they want, you know, their their neighborhoods and their towns covered with solar panels. I was in Christiana, Wisconsin, just a few weeks ago. I also wrote about it on my Substack. Here's a little town of 1,800 people, and there's a, a plan afoot being pushed by Invenergy, which is a privately held company in, based in Chicago, to force the community to accept a, a solar project that would cover seven square miles of the town with solar panels. 
some of the best farmland in all of Wisconsin, therefore some of the best farmland in all of the world, and they want to pave it with solar panels and do it in a very backhanded kind of way. So, of course, the locals are fighting it. Of course they are. What do you think? They're stupid. But then that is kind of the, you know, the attitude that a lot of these schemers, the people are putting mm-hmm. these these analyses together that, oh, we're just going to, you know, put it out there in flyover country. Well, they're people who live out in flyover country. And I love those people. And I will stick mm-hmm. up for them because they're getting screwed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mary Jean, you know, you've been following along with me the crazy plans here in Ottawa. I mean, it sounds like Ottawa, if I'm understanding rightly, they're doing many of the things that Robert says the people in the United States are objecting to. Would you agree? People here, there's not as much pushback. It doesn't sound seem like there's as much pushback against the wind farms and solar panels. I think a lot of people don't know about it. Um, like if you didn't follow, weren't following the issue in Ottawa, like you wouldn't know that there are all these plans being made to have enormous wind turbines in the mm-hmm. city. Yeah. But but I think it's very clear in, in Ontario, if it's not necessarily in Ottawa, in Ontario, the backlash against it, particularly against wind projects, has been huge. I think mm. wind, con- wind Concerns Ontario has been documenting there's something like more than 90 local communities have said have declared themselves unwilling hosts to wind projects. So, you know, the, the, it is very clear that there is a there is increasing friction on the siding of these projects in Canada. Uh, remember, there was also just the recent uh, move, was it in Nova Scotia or Newfoundland against a big wind project? So in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this this is widespread resistance. This isn't just a, li- a few people and they, it's, they're not NIMBY is a term that I hate. You know, mm-hmm. it implies that, oh, they're just they, those cute little dumb heads. If only they knew how <laughs> all important all this was, everything would be fine. No. Everyone everywhere cares about what happens in their neighborhood and to label them as NIMBYs is a slur. And, mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, this kind of convenient way to dismiss their concerns for their property values and for their, frankly, for their rights as individuals and, and landowners. Oh, well, sorry, you're going to take this because, you know, it's good for the climate, right? That's the rationalization. <laughs> well, hold on yeah. just a minute. You know, let's let's we have a democracy here. We have a process here about determining how things happen. And um, so anyway, I, I could go on yeah. on this. It gets me, it, as you can tell, I get a little charged, a, a lot charged up about it, because what I see and I'll, I'll, I'll stop after I say this is what we're seeing in the name of climate change, in the name mm-hmm. of climate change. And I'm not arguing you know, climate one way or another. Climate change is a concern. It's not our only concern. But what I see is the the idea of climate change, the, the the claims around climate change are being used by big business, big banks, and big law firms to screw small town America, and yeah. that is exactly how I see it as a as a political story. As what is the big issue here? What is at root of the function of what's happening here? That's it. Yeah, it sounds like that's actually what's happening here in Ottawa. I mean, have you have you had a look at the Ottawa climate change plan? You know, their plans to get rid of all fossil fuels, run the city largely on wind and solar, have no elect, have all electric vehicles and no electric, no uh, gas powered cars. I mean, what would be your message to the to the citizens of Ottawa as to whether this is realistic? <laughs> well, it's completely unrealistic. I mean, there, you know, there is no this idea that we're going to electrify everything is, again, based on this false assumption that you can build enough high voltage transmission to uh, handle all the load and move all the electrons around and that you're going to have a, a grid that is robust enough to handle uh, in particular the these massive low energy demand loads in the winter time 
you know, this is one of the things that I think is very fundamental and I, as a, a clear warning to people in Canada and in the United States. We forget, and it's easy to forget, the a massive amount of energy that is delivered via the natural gas grid. Mm. And there have been some calculations done here in the U.S. that to meet peak winter demand in the United States, and now we're Texas is becoming a winter-peaking state because we've had some cold winters and a lot of people in Texas use electric heat. But if we apply this nationally in the United States, if we were going to meet peak electric demand in the winter by and, and eliminate gas-fueled heating, we would have to double the size of the electric grid in the United States just to meet that winter-peaking demand. So, wow. I mean, it's just a massive, massive assumption. And the other part of it is that I've lived in a house with a heat pump. I'll be very clear. Heat pumps suck. I would really? never want a heat pump. They are okay. terrible. I want a gas-fired furnace. I want to cook with gas. I want to heat my water with gas and dry my clothes with gas. And you will ply, grab, you will pry my fingers off of my cold, <laughs> dead hands when you eliminate my gas stove. But there is an elite group of NGOs in America now and around the world who are pushing these gas bans, and they have a staggering amount of money behind them. Yeah. So, Tackle, can you say a little more about heat pumps? Because Ottawa wants to force the citizens they to use suck. heat pumps. Heat pumps suck. Did I say like, that? Heat like, pumps well, yeah. Like, what's, what's the problem with them? <laughs> well, first, okay, so I, I don't like noise. I, I have noise. I, I, I like quietude. Yeah. Heat pumps, <laughs> they are like refrigerators, right? You have to run a, a big fan inside of a heat pump to extract the heat that's in the air on a cold day and bring it inside, right? That's the fundamental thing how they work well so that you have to deal with this noisy machine is one of my objections and i've lived in a home with a heat pump i know how they work but second they don't they're not as efficient particularly in cold weather and this is a problem that has been well recognized and then third there is something that we humans and because of who we are we're mammals we like radiant heat so, you know, a, a gas stove or a gas fireplace, we like cozying up to it because of that radiant heat is very soothing to us. W uh, heat pumps require this, you know, this air to be heated, which is okay, but it's not as, as my friend Meredith Angwin points out, not as cozy. It's not as appealing to us. It's not as comforting to us. So there is the, something very important to us about being close to fire. And this is one of the conceits and one of the things that I find just so incredible by the people who are pushing this electrify everything, uh, you know, uh, agenda. Oh, we just have to give up fire. I mean, mm -hmm. I, that is almost a direct quote from Bill McKibben, mm -hmm. who is uh, supposed to be on my podcast at the end of this month, by the way. Oh, we'll just give up fire. And I, I saw that. And I thought, are you mad? I mean, I, truly, are you mad? We are We are the fire builders. That's how we built society. Civilization was with fire, and now you're saying we should not use fire? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's almost beyond belief, the kind of conceit that comes with that kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of course, here in Canada, it gets a heck of a lot colder than the United States. I mean, what happened in Texas? I, I know they were heavily, and they still are, heavily reliant on wind power. If you go back to February 2021 as kind of a warning to Ottawa, what what, what what transpired then? Well, okay, so it's a complicated story. But the uh, first, I mean, the, the most fundamental part of this here is that it, got, it was very cold for a long darn time. Okay, so I live in Austin. I've lived here for almost 40 years or 30. Well, it's 38 years this year. Um, we've never had a, a cold spell like we did with um, 
in, in February of 2021. It stayed under freezing. The temperature was under freezing for six days in a row. So that meant all the system was strained in a big way. Second, that during the, the height of the or depth of the crisis, the wind and solar resources that the state has built and which upon which were spent something like $60 billion, according to the wind and solar crowd's own numbers, all of that all of that capacity was unavailable. So at the, the, the critical point here is, am I blaming all of this on wind and solar? No, I'm not. What I am pointing out is that at the height of the crisis or the depth of the crisis, when we needed more power generation, all that $60 billion, all those 30,000 megawatts of wind, uh, that however many megawatts of solar, all of it went to Cancun with Ted Cruz. Wasn't available, was not worth anything. And mm -hmm. so what happened as well, it was very cold. Some of the gas-fired uh, generators uh, froze up. Some of the gas was not couldn't be delivered because the gas plants themselves were running on electric power and they got shut off. Some of the coal plants, some of the coal piles froze up. I, I was talking with a friend of mine who works in the utility sector that in some of these power plants, the ice storm froze up the coal piles so you couldn't deliver coal into the burners. Some of the oh, nuclear man. plants had trouble. I mean, it was damn cold. But mm -hmm. at root, we had a system where no one was responsible, no one was in charge. And this is one of the functions or failures of this restructured electric system that we have, in, in which no one was fundamentally responsible for reliability. So many different issues. It's not just mm -hmm. renewables, it's many different issues, but all of them tied together, ended up with a result where you had hundreds of people died many some of them you know many of them not directly because of the the electric grid failure but many of them did and and we came this close and i do mean it is about that close to a complete system failure which had the had the texas or the ERCOT grid gone black it would have taken months to bring it back online i mean the, mm -hmm. the catastrophe would have been unimaginable and we would have mm -hmm. had a mass mortality event instead of hundreds dying we would have seen, th seen thousands or even tens of thousands of people dead oh, yeah. and, and further imagine that if you don't have nat gas then to back up your electric power system so i mean i'm we were lucky okay so i'm going to be very clear during winter storm yuri now this is two years ago we have a fireplace and we had enough firewood so we could have a fire and we moved our bed into the living room and it was kind of you know actually kind of cozy you know but we had hot water we could cook I mean, so, you know, things were, and we put a pot of water on the stove so we, you know, have some humidity in there. You know, it, we were kind of camping at home, but it wasn't, we weren't marooned. Now, imagine you don't have natural gas and you are forced to only rely on one network, the electric grid, and you have no way of eating, no in, uh, heating your food. I mean, it would have been catastrophic. And yet, yeah. this is the agenda that is being pushed by the anti-industry industry. And make no mistake, they are backed by billions of dollars. And I've documented it myself on, on, on what I call the anti-industry industry. And also in a piece I wrote on my Substack, robertbrice.substack.com, on the billionaires behind the gas bans. There are some of the richest people in the world are funding the groups who are pushing this all-renewable anti-hydrocarbon agenda. And they are unaccountable. Mm -hmm. They are not reporting where they're getting all their money. And I think this is a very... Um, uh, a pernicious influence on our society. And I think a deeply dangerous one. Yeah, exactly. We have to go for a break now. Sure. But when we get back, you know, I think you had a question, Mary Jean, about subsidies. Can you get into that? Because, you know, we hear two things. Uh, first of all, that there's lots of subsidies for wind and solar, but then they respond that there's lots of subsidies for fossil fuels. So, Robert, can we get into that when we get back? Sure, of course. 
Yeah. Okay. So we'll be right back after the break. Hang on. We've got Robert Bryce, an expert in energy from Texas, who experienced the blackout back in February 2021 himself. So he's a good person to have on. Be right back. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be, with a company that shares your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code OUTLOUD and get 20% off. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com. Seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. Hi everyone, we're back with Robert Bryce. Robert is a writer of energy and power, and we want to talk about the topic of subsidies. So how are subsidies being used to bolster renewable energy? And uh, also, how is this related to the potential failure of the U.S. electric grid? Well, uh, so first, I'll just speak generally about the issue of subsidies, which uh, and tax incentives. That is what the better, I guess, the more specific or more, uh, more correct way to talk about them, federal tax incentives here in the United States. So I've done these calculations, and in 2021, when you look on a per unit of energy produced basis, and I measured it in exajoules because that was the number that I had at hand, that in 2021, solar got 267 times more uh, in tax credits than the nuclear sector did. Wind energy got 99 or 99 times more. Um, so when you think, if you're an, in the electricity business and you're building a power plant, 
and you want to make money, well, why would you build anything else but wind or solar? That's where the money uh, is. You know, it's yeah. like John Dillinger said, well, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. And so, <laughs> you know, as Charlie Munger said, now, since I'm quoting John Dillinger and Charlie Munger, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the outcome, which is that you provide the federal government in the United States has provided these massive subsidies to the wind and solar industries. And what are what is getting built? Hello, duh, wind and solar, and, that, <laughs> yeah. and that's going to be that's going to be exacerbated even more uh, with after the Inflation Reduction Act, which has added yet even more subsidies for wind and solar. So the the differentials are just staggering. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine who actually works in uh, in the fossil fuel sector, I asked him why is he putting up wind turbines on the abandoned uh, offshore uh, oil drilling platforms. And he said, because we get paid to put them up. <laughs> so the government is totally distorting the what would naturally not favor wind and solar. Well, there's no doubt about it. And and I don't know of any wind projects that are being built on the on the decks of old old oil and gas uh, platforms. I don't think there's any 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 way to make that work uh, because of the way the you know the structures have to be built. But nevertheless, that's the other big battle that is underway here in the United States, and it's over offshore wind. And it's been remarkable to me again. Um, to look at these NGOs. Um, I don't call them environmental groups. I don't call them green groups. I don't think they're either one. They're climate-focused NGOs or alt-energy mm -hmm. NGOs. And how they have just lined up in favor of offshore wind and saying, oh, don't worry about the whales. That is then their, their message over and over. Oh, yeah. Don't yeah. worry about the North Atlantic right whale. Yes, it's critically endangered. and But then no mention of the fact, they say, oh, well, these dead, the number of whales that are washing up on the East Coast has been increasing dramatically. Oh, don't worry about that. It's not being caused by these offshore wind projects. Okay, well, you may be right. You may be wrong. But have you noticed, and isn't just a little interesting to you, NGO world, that all nearly all of these wind projects in, uh, in the in the area around New York, New Jersey, are being built right on top of what is already known as designated critical habitat for the North Atlantic right whale. Imagine, yeah. Tom, imagine, Mary Jean, if it were the oil and gas industry trying to do what the offshore wind industry is doing today, you would be hearing in, from in Ottawa the screams of indignation. But yet, because this is the wind business, crickets. I mean, I, I just find it, again, just staggering. And, and, and I think Michael Schellenberger hit it right. It's environmental betrayal. And I think that that is the right word, a betrayal of the most fundamental tenets of environmentalism, which is protection of wildlands and protection of wildlife, and has mm -hmm. been completely disregarded in this renewable energy fetishism. Mm -hmm. Do you think Michael Moore was exaggerating in his movie, Planet of the Humans, where he showed that wind and solar and batteries, when you actually count how they're made and where they get the materials, they're actually very, very environmentally destructive. Was he exaggerating? No, I don't think so. I, uh, and we can look at the production of solar panels. Well, where is the bulk of the world's polysilicon coming from? It's coming from China. What does China use to produce polysilicon? They use coal-fired power plants. 
In addition, oh, yeah. whereas a lot of the polysilicon being produced in China, it's being produced in Xinjiang province, which has become known or rather infamous for their use of slave labor uh, from uh, Uyghur Muslims. So that's one issue. The other issue when it comes to wind. Okay, well, let's talk about wind. Where you also need the same permanent magnets for wind turbines that you do for EVs. Who supplies those? China. So, you know, the... There's this idea that we've had this branding exercise, and that's what it is, a big branding, a big media campaign around clean energy, around green energy. There's no such thing. Every form of energy production require, has an input, and there's no such thing as free energy. All of it exacts a cost. As to quote my friend Jesse Osabel, wind and solar may be renewable, they are not green. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mary, Mary Jean, remember the book on 1984, and they had something called Newspeak, where they would actually design the language that people would use to help people think in certain ways that the government approved. Don't you think that's what's sort of happening here? They call it green energy, you know, environmentally friendly, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, is this like something out of 1984, Mary Jean, in your experience? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of different topics, so with the environment and with other politically correct topics, it's you can't really say uh, anything logical, I guess, about it, because uh, if it doesn't fit with their narrative, then they're they're not going to accept it. So, yeah. So so the city of Ottawa, I guess they're being really bamboozled because they keep talking about zero emission buses not looking at where the batteries come from and the emissions. I mean, in, in a lot of ways then, Robert, these sources are not wind powered, they're coal powered because you gotta make the facilities. <laughs> Well, that's right. And, and, and the uh, look at what is happening. Let's talk again. Let's zoom out and talk about what's happening in the coal business. So what is happening in China? They're permitting about one new coal plant a week. That's not mine. That's not my number. Global Energy Monitor has published these numbers. Uh, India is also building more coal fired power plants. Pakistan, uh, Pakistan, after the European energy crisis, they got priced out of the liquefied natural gas business. They're building coal plants. So Again, we have to be very clear-eyed and we have to be very sober when we're talking about what is happening here. And what is happening is, I think, to a large degree, a lot of marketing um, and a lot of around these uh, alternative energy technologies, and it's been incredibly effective. And there is a staggering amount of money and, and media support for behind them. And they also poll very well. I mean, there's just something appealing about this idea of renewable, right? That, oh, somehow it's free and guilt-free and that is, you know, there's no, no harm in it. Well, the more, there was an interesting study that was done now, this is about a decade ago, and it was by some researchers in the University of Maryland. What did they find? They found that the more people understood about wind energy, the less they liked it. And so what, what this is this a lot of this, uh, what we're seeing is just a uh, the the uh, entrenched interests, the big business, big banks, big law firms are profiting largely over the ignorance of the public when it comes to the issues around the electric grid and around the, the external uh, impacts, the, these very serious, rather environmental impacts of wind and solar. And so this has been really my life's work for the last few years. And uh, there's a lot more work to be done because you know, again, the money that is at stake here is just, it staggers the mind how much money is, is being pushed.
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just to give people an idea, I was looking at the Climate Policy Initiative, and they were out of San Francisco. They were tracking uh, how much is being spent on climate change in general, and they found over a billion dollars U.S. a day was being spent. I'm sure that's probably small in comparison with reality, but most of it was going to renewable energy. So, I mean, this is a huge project. I mean, it probably rivals the expenditure on arms. I mean, surely it must now be one of the biggest industries. Yeah, I can't answer that. I can give you some relational information about what is going on. And that is, um, there's some new numbers that just came out from the International Energy Agency. And I'm going to uh, pull them up because I've been, uh, you know, like I said, been working on it directly for uh, months now um, for different presentations. Um, and if you look back at, and I'm adamantly pro-nuclear, right? I've, I've been um, pro-nuclear for, you know, a dozen years. And when you look at the differential between the amount of money that is being spent on renewable energy versus the amount that is being spent on nuclear, it's just no, there's no comparison. And in fact, there's something like, um, what is it, 10x, the differential in the amount of money that is being spent uh, globally now um, on um, uh, renewables per year versus the amount of money that's being spent on nuclear. I mean, it's just a staggering uh, differential. Um, here's the numbers. Um, so in 2015, about 30 billion being spent on nuclear, 331 billion on renewables. And the latest year, 20, uh, 2023, again, these are IEA numbers uh, from their latest energy investment, world energy investment report. They expect 63 billion spent this year on nuclear, 659 billion on renewables. So that's $4.1 trillion, $4.1 trillion dollars spent on renewables uh, between two, uh, 2015 and 2023. These are just massive numbers. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Anyway, over to you, Mary Jean, for the next question. For sure. So we talked about it a little bit before, but what is the Renewable Rejection Database and was it, what has it succeeded in so far? Well, I created the Renewable Rejection Database myself back in 2015. I've been tracking it before then. Um, but I created the database because I wanted to have numbers that show uh, that the scale of the opposition to the encroachment of wind and solar. So uh, the famous industrial analyst W. Edwards Deming said, in God we trust all others bring data. So I realized, okay, well, I need to put data to what is happening. And so I began doing that. And um, what did I find? That the uh, all across the country, uh, the number of, of communities that are rejecting wind and or solar uh, has been growing. And um, you can find it on my website, robertbryce.com. You can also find it by just Googling Renewable Rejection Database. But it, it, what's interesting to me is that no one in the renewable sector has ever questioned my numbers. They never, they don't want to argue this. They want to act like there's no opposition anywhere. And, and that, and in, but in fact, the reality is quite the opposite. In fact, just in the last couple of days, there's a case that is moving now to the Michigan Supreme Court that is being pushed by Next Era Energy. Next Era Energy is the world's biggest renewable energy producer. They're going all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court because they are trying to force a wind project on a local township that doesn't want it. And so, you know, this is just another example, yet another example of both I, what I would say is the ruthlessness of this renewable energy sector, this green energy sector, that they are going to, they will play bully ball with anyone who stands up against them. And we've seen this over and over. And NextEra is not the first one. That they've sued other places, including the small town of Hinton, Oklahoma. Um, they've actually sued in Canada. They sued an individual in Canada. 
You talk about corporate responsibility. Next Air Energy sued Esther Reitman in Canadian court in a slap suit because she dared to put on her website and call uh, putting up a website that called them Next Error and Next Terror. They sued, her, they sued her for that because I guess it hurt their feelings. That case has never been dismissed. It is still pending. And this is the supposed green technology. I mean, come on. You know, if this had happened in the United States, if this was Exxon or Chevron, imagine what would have the, the press coverage would have been. But instead, because it's next air, they will not cover it. They won't cover it because it doesn't fit the narrative. And I've talked to these yeah. reporters. I talk to them all the time. It's like they call me. Well, tell us about this. I'm like. Okay, you know, it, it, it gets tiresome after a while because they don't know anything about the background and they, they don't, you know, they're too busy to educate themselves. But this is the reality. It's big business, big banks, big law firms against small town America and in many cases and, and small town Canada. And mm -hmm. they are they are ruthless in, in their pursuit of tax credits. That's the mm -hmm. bottom line. Wow, this is incredible. I'm going to send this to the Environment and Climate Change Committee for the City of Ottawa because you know, this interview is just so important. I mean, you know, a lot of the people on the committee are social justice uh, warriors, I guess you could say. They support the idea of helping the poor and everything else. And, and that's actually another interesting point. If you're interested in helping the poor, surely the last thing you should do is push forward wind and solar where you could double or quadruple the electricity costs. I mean, this is this is also a social justice issue, isn't it, Robert? Well, of course, and and therein lies one of the other big ironies here is that for all of this talk, and that's just it, it's a lot of talk about social justice and climate justice. When you look fundamentally, and I mentioned electric vehicles before, the electric vehicles are not, you know, it's not the poor in the middle class that are buying electric vehicles. They can't afford these cars. It's not the tradesmen. It's not the carpenters and the bricklayers and the landscape, the landscape guys that are buying these cars. It's the bins and Beamer crowd and who can afford, you know, a more expensive electricity. Well, that's, you know, it's people who are doing pretty well. It's what we see it, particularly in California, which is in the vanguard of all of this policy. What do we see over and over this increase in electric rates? That is because of all this renewable, um, these renewable mandates, it's taking and it's exacting a regressive tax on the poor and the middle class. It is that exactly that it is a regressive tax. And yet mm -hmm. it is not being discussed in that way, but that's in fact what it is. Mm -hmm. So Mary Jean, I think you had a question about what the public can do. Why don't you take over there? Yeah, so we just wanted to know what are some ideas about how the public can stop renewable energy projects from coming to their communities, how to push back against this. Yeah, well, that's a good question. Uh, I think, you know, the first thing that people have to do is they have to get educated. They have to understand the terminology. And this is something I have great admiration for my friend, uh, Meredith Angwin. She wrote a great book called uh, Shorting the Grid, and she's been on my podcast five times, I think. And um, she dedicated herself to understanding how electricity markets work and wrote a great, a very fine book, self-published it. And she's become a, 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 a well-known expert on electricity and electric grids in America as a grandmother from a small town in Vermont who, you know, has the technical capability. She got a, a master's in chemistry from the University of Chicago in the 1960s. And now in her late 70s is having this new career as an expert on electricity grids. So I hold her up as an example of, see, here is someone showing how it can be done. But she applied herself. And so 
you know, when people ask me, well, how do you change policy? How do you deal with these issues? I say that pack a lunch. Mm. You've got to be serious and you can't just assume that this is going to go your way at the first meeting. No, that's not how it works. Who wins here? It's the people who show up. Who wins here? It's the people who are dedicated to understanding these projects and what they mean for their communities and their people more generally. And they are facing in many cases, and you know, I've seen these land use conflicts over and over. I was in Christiana, Wisconsin. I think I mentioned just a few weeks ago, a very small town that's facing huge odds with effectively the, the regulatory power of the state of Wisconsin and the Public Service Commission in Wisconsin. And one of the biggest in renewable energy companies in the world, privately held energy com renewable companies, Invenergy, they're up against it. But what do they have on their side? They have their own sense of righteousness, their own sense of of wrongdoing and their own desire to protect their neighborhoods. And those are powerful things. I mean, really <clears throat> powerful things. And I've seen it over and over in talking to people across the country that these, a few committed individuals can have an enormous impact, but you got to pack a lunch and you got to mm -hmm. care. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there's nothing simple or easy about any of this. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you something really good. And that is, is a group called Action for Canada. And they're standing up against a lot of these crazy woke causes that are dominating our society. And a number of their representatives actually spoke at the last City of Ottawa Environment and Climate Change Committee. One of them was a teacher. And tell me if you think her approach made sense. She, she asked the city, well, can you show us another jurisdiction of a similar size, you know, like a million people, uh, you know, in cold weather, et cetera, that has actually gone 100% electric and has gotten rid of our electric, or sorry, gas powered cars, um, has gotten rid of our fossil fuel, natural gas. And if you don't have an example, instead of forcing the whole city to move over to this new approach, why don't you do a pilot study of the people on this committee and show us how you can live with just an electric car or walking or taking the bus, you know, and, and re-insulating your homes and doing all the things, running your home with a heat pump, do all these things as a demonstration. And then after you've done it for a year, come back and tell us how it worked. Right. Does that make sense? Does that make sense to actually have pilot projects instead of moving a whole city over to totally, you know, unreliable sources? Well, sure sounds sensible to me, Tom. You know, let's yeah. this idea of testing things before the you actually try and implement them at scale. Yeah, absolutely critically important idea. Um, but I fear what we're doing, uh, what has been happening instead is that this idea, oh, we're just going to make a wholesale change and it's all going to work out in our favor and without any testing of the concepts. And so I think it's important to remember not only is, is there no testing, no kind of uh, really formal kind of uh, a regimen for un understanding what the consequences might be, the downside the downside the potential catastrophe that could occur if this doesn't work both in terms of but in terms of affordability reliability and resilience those are very real and i think again we we need some very sober consideration some very sober analysis of what is really going on here and what is at stake and i don't see that mm -hmm. happening mm -hmm. yeah it strikes me that the whole approach is reckless I mean, you know, you're taking a system which has never worked in, in any country or in a city uh, like Ottawa, and you're just suddenly saying, we're going to suddenly move over to all of this. I mean, this sounds like a reckless approach. Well, it, it, I think there is many, there are many parts of it that are reckless. And what we're seeing here in the United States is 
a lot of warnings coming from regulators, including PJM and others, saying we're facing a reliability crisis and it's not being recognized as such. And so we're closing coal-fired power plants and without any understanding of what those long-term implications of the, those closures might be. So again, I, I think I've said this so many times, but I, it, we, it has to be part of where we're, you know, we're coming at this. We need a sober approach. We need a very mm -hmm. sober analysis of what's going on. And instead of mm -hmm. sobriety, we're getting a lot of froth. We're getting a lot of hype. We're getting, a, and, it's, and it's being driven by uh, these staggering amounts of money and tax credits that are at stake here. Um, because it suits big business to make this work in this way. And they're mm -hmm. not responsible for the grid. So that's mm -hmm. not their job. So, you know, we can say that, well, they shouldn't do it. Well, yeah, probably. But that again, show me the incentive. I'll show you the, uh, the outcome. Yeah, exactly. You know, Mary Jean, besides the education that ordinary citizens have to take part in, so they actually know what they're talking about and actually can start to convince others, wouldn't you say that a primary ingredient and something Action for Canada does well, wouldn't you say that they have to be a lot braver? They have to actually, you know, extend themselves and go into situations where they may get some pushback. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they have to be aware that most of the people are going to really think that poorly of them if they make these complaints because it's seen to be unenvironmentally friendly if you're mm -hmm. against mm -hmm. solar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the Action for Canada people was actually meeting with a counselor just recently, and she was bringing up a fair number of the points that, that we were talking about. And the counselor responded, oh, are you a climate change denier? <laughs> and she said, no, of course not. I mean, that's a dumb question. She didn't say it's a dumb question. She was too polite. But I mean, I think that they're just trying to slam people to shut them up. I guess the main thing that people can do, one is educate themselves. And I'm going to put under the podcast, you know, we have references relevant to this show, uh, the things that people can do to actually educate themselves, and in particular, going to your website. And it strikes me also, they're going to have to develop a spine. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Don't you think that to some extent, the average person, uh, and most of them, you know, many of them have conservative points of view, have they become too comfortable? Because the left seem to be the only ones out there yelling and screaming. I mean, surely average people now have got to start getting involved. Well, yes. And this is, and therein lies one of the problems is that, um, you know, people have jobs. They have other things that they have to do. And this is something that I know from my own experience in reporting on resistance to renewable projects in rural America. So who are the people in general who are leading the charges against these projects? I'm going to generalize, but it's primarily women, primarily in their 30s, 40s, 50s, some of them in their 60s, who are working from their kitchen tables and talking to their neighbors and then talking to them some more and who are dedicated to protecting what they have. And it takes time and it takes commitment. And I've heard so many times from these kinds of people that they just get worn down because they feel they're, 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 uh, they're abandoned by their local politicians. They feel like the news media doesn't care. Um, and they just get worn out with it and they give up and, mm -hmm. and they're facing enormous odds. I mean, let's be clear that they're, you know, the, the, the other side, the, 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 and I say broadly, the other side, the, you know, the people who are the entities that are pushing these big projects, they have 
nearly unlimited money. They have all kinds of media support and they have a lot of momentum behind them and they're getting paid to wait. And so they can just, in many cases, just simply outlast people because mm -hmm. they, the, the people get frustrated. They get tired. They sell out and move away. I've seen this over and over again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, this is about money. It's not about climate change. And mm -hmm. that is the key issue here. And it's the one mm -hmm. that has to be repeated over and over and again. And I'll make one other quick point on my Substack, robertrice.substack.com. And the only one I'm, I'm not, I'm not bragging here. I'm stating as a fact, the only one that has ever documented the scale of the money that is behind this push, this all renewable natural gas ban push there is four and a half billion dollars per year being spent by this anti-industry industry. It's just an enormously influential uh, sector in the economy here in the United States. I don't know how large it is in Canada, but there is an enormous amount of money behind this. And there are enormous amounts of media influencers behind this. And so, you know, we have to recognize that the odds are against sobriety. The odds are behind silliness and a lot of uh, 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 more weather dependent renewables. And I'll, I'll end mm -hmm. with this, which is, I know you're interested in climate change. I don't talk about climate change very much. But my, my bottom line when it comes to renewables is this, if we're facing more extreme weather, hotter, colder, more extremes on both ends for longer, why in the world would we ever make our most important energy network dependent on the weather? Yeah, that's a perfect way to end. <laughs> I'd love to continue, but that's an ideal question. Of course, we need a robust energy system. You know, Robert here has actually written several books. I'll be listing them under the podcast. Pipe Dreams, Greed, Ego, and the Death of Enron. Smaller, faster, lighter, denser, cheaper. How innovations keep proving the catastrophist wrong. And the last one here, very relevant to our show, a question of power, electricity, and the wealth of nations. So thanks for being on the show with me and Mary Jean, Robert. It's been a pleasure, Tom. Pleasure, Mary Jean. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's great. So this is Tom Harrison, Mary Jean, my co-host, signing out from the other side of the story. <laughs>